Not feeling guilty is no proof of guilt or innocence, and not feeling uh, forgiven is the same thing. So I would say to you that uh, you need to look at the objective truths of the Scripture. See what it is that Jesus teaches about salvation. And if you trust in those words of his teaching, then you can be assured that you are in his kingdom. But as soon as you start uh, resting on your feelings, you're cooked. Hello, everyone. My name is Caleb Giesbrecht, and this is the Reformed Rants Podcast, where today I'll be discussing why aren't most people reformed in their theology anymore? Why don't most people pursue deep theology? Why is scriptural authority replaced by emotional authority? How did the church come to this place? Why does it look so much like the culture? How did we get here? And of course, as I ask that question in such a way, it is going to take upon a more of a historical analysis than we have been going at so far. And you might be asking, why go at it historically? Why not just give us the problem and give us the solution? And that's a great, great question. And I think to do that, we need to go to scripture first as our foundation. I mean, even with the rejection of Reformed theology, we see that the primary foundation for Reformed theology is this notion of sola scriptura. Authority is found in scripture alone. And that is why we have rejected biblical authority with our own authority. God's authority has been replaced by our own. We worship ourselves rather than God. And that's what makes it heresy. That what make, That's what makes this so vitally important. So let's start off by reading from the Word of God, and then I'll elaborate on how this applies to our life. So starting with Psalm chapter 19, David writes, The heavens are the telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of my great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so, this is the foundation that David sets himself upon. First of all, he elaborates upon creation. Creation points to you, Father. Creation rejoices in you. And this is what the primary purpose of us seeing the creation of God is, is to recognize what it points towards, not to worship it itself. As I pointed out time and time again in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they gave up the truth of God for the lie and worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And this is the issue. 
when we don't understand the distinction between God and his creation, and when we don't understand what purpose his creation plays. It's to glorify him, to honor him, to magnify him, to exalt him. And that's not to say that he can be more exalted than he already is. It's, and it's not to say that he can have more glory than he already has because he is the most magnificent being ever, the most holy and exalted being ever. However, it is to demonstrate that to us more and more and more because we can never fully comprehend that. He is the Alpha and the Omega, right? And so this is, this is what David's really trying to get at. And then we see in the second half of the chapter that he really goes at the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And of course, he ends off the chapter by saying, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He recognizes that God is the rock. He's the foundation upon which we stand. He is the redeemer. He is the one who gives us salvation. He has redeemed us himself. And this is just a beautiful chapter. Honestly, I think if people read this more often, we'd understand just the beauty, beauty of the word of God. His law is perfect, making wise the simple. God makes wise the simple, the humble, and yet he makes the wise fools. He makes those who are proud and haughty fools because what they do is they pursue earthly wisdom and knowledge, and yet they reject the originator and the giver of that earthly knowledge and wisdom. So, and of course, this idea is followed into the New Testament, continually scriptures quoted as authoritative as a way to live when christ is in the desert being tempted he responds with scripture god's breathed word because it is authoritative and it is perfect in first timothy chapter 3 verse 16 paul writes all scripture is inspired by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness since so we see this foundation of sola scriptura and yet that has been rejected by the modern church. And it's not just Charismatics and Pentecostals. It's not just Roman Catholics. It's the Baptists. It's the Presbyterians. And it's everywhere. And so as this theological disease grows and grows, and we see people catering to the culture more and more and more, we need to have a response. We need to stand upon the foundation of God's word. We need to understand, okay, how did we get here? What was the foundational core problem of this? What is the history of this? And how do we respond as a church? How do we go back to the things of God? Because 200 years ago only, we had Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest theologians and preachers to ever live. 500 years ago, Martin Luther walk to this earth. And so we see that there have been many, many great theologians in the past 500 years, and yet more and more and more the church is beginning to look like the world. And that is why we reformed, and we need to reform again. We need to be constantly reforming. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. So, what does this mean for us? Well, 
there were preachers who led us into this. There were wolves who led us astray. And so we need to see how did that happen? How did the pastors of the past 500 years lead us into this where we are, we are weak? And then we need to see, okay, how has the culture influenced the church? And then we need to look at how this has happened in the past. It happened in the first and second centuries, in fact. And so we can see history repeats itself. And those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And so today I want to give us an analysis of the relationship between paganism and Christianity. Because that's what's happening again. We're seeing paganism on the rise in the modern culture. We're no longer a secular society, but rather a pagan one. And we're seeing that begin to mesh with the Christian worldview. We're seeing that through the likes of Jordan Peterson or um, the Southern Baptist Convention as they have taken on critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical biblical tools. It's all over the place. We have this paganism just coming down upon us and we're opening our arms to it. We're not fighting against it. We're not resisting it. And that is a must. That is a must. We are warned time and time again throughout scripture. Watch out for the wolves. Watch out for those who come in to deceive you. Do not be snared by the fire. Do not fall. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes that we are to build off of the foundation of Christ with Christ, not with gold, hay, silver, straw, or any other material, but rather Christ himself is the foundation and he is the material upon which we build off of that. And we will be judged by God one day for that. And so therefore, this is important. It's not important to justification once again, the process upon which we are justified in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone. Brother, sanctification is the process between justification, where we're made right in God's sight, and glorification, where we are ascended to heaven to be with God for eternity. It's this process, this weird middle process here on earth, as we're trying to be more and more sanctified, working to... Um, working with God in this, that God is softening our heart further and further towards him, and we're becoming more and more like his son, which Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 3, put off the things of the flesh, put off sexual immorality, hatred for one another, lying, deceit, all of these wicked things, put them off, get rid of them, throw them away. And what do you want to put on? The things of Christ. Set your mind on the heavenly things. Put on a beloved heart compassion, love, mercy, grace. And so we see that there is this process of sanctification, that we are growing to be in the likeness of Christ. Not that we are to be a crea- the creator himself or even equal to him, but rather that we are to put on the traits and attributes of God in the sense that we will be loving like him. We will no longer be have our own sinful nature, but rather we will be perfected in his image as we were made to be. And so this is the foundation I stand upon today. This is this is how I move forward into my historical analysis. The church has abandoned scripture. And it is disgusting and terrifying all at the same time. We have moved in this direction where we abandoned the authority of God and have replaced it with our own authority. Now, to demonstrate this and to understand why the church is here, we actually need to go back to the early church, to the first and second centuries, and understand the heresy of Gnosticism. I mentioned it in the first episode of the podcast, just briefly mentioning it. But it was a rather pervasive 
and parasitic heresy. It would attach on to its host and take over. It would change it from the inside. Of course, it was not just a ideology that affected Christianity, as it was it was the combination of Hellenism with ancient religions. For instance, the modern Gnostic bishop, Stefan Holler, writes, most of them probably would not have called themselves by the name Gnostic, but would have rather considered themselves Christians, or more rarely, rarely Jews, or as belonging to the traditions of the ancient cults of Egypt, Babylon, Greece, and Rome. They were not sectarians or the members of a specific new religion, as their detractors claimed, but rather people who shared with each other a certain attitude toward life. And so, Gnosticism was a idea. It was it was it was these it was these foundational core precepts that would be attached onto a religion, and it would fundamentally change the religion. And so, because today I'm discussing the church and the Christian church, we're going to analyze this from the Christian perspective. And what they said was, the physical world is evil. There is no truth to be ascertained from it. It is wicked, and therefore we need to abandon it. And so, rather than looking to the physical world for truth, they looked inwardly. They looked to the spiritual, to the divine, and they believed that they could receive personal divine revelation, and that was foundational, that was authoritative in their lives. Now, the Apostle Paul addressed a form of Gnosticism in his epistle to the church at Colossae. And, of course, he did this rather rather interestingly. In chapter 2 of Colossians, he writes that we are not to be taken by any vain or worldly philosophy. And he builds upon this, and and he goes further into the chapter and addresses legalism. Do not let anyone judge you in terms of food or drink or Sabbath or ceremony or a new moon. And the fact of the matter is that the Gnostics were very, very legalistic in the way that they went about things. They, they would, they abandoned marriage. They said marriage was wrong because it's part of the physical world. Sexual relations are part of the physical. Food, drink, aspects of these are part of the physical. And so we need to forsake as much as we possibly can to be more spiritual, to exalt ourselves. And so the point of Gnosticism was self-exaltation. And then in chapter 3, Paul goes against what is known as antinomianism. He goes against this idea that you can just live however you want. Because the other Gnostics, the other side of it, they, they would say, well, the physical world is evil, it is corrupted, there's no truth to be ascertained from it, and therefore it doesn't matter what we do here. All that matters is the spiritual. And so, therefore, we can live as we want with our physical bodies, and it's not going to affect anything. And this is the wrong view as well. We are to, as I said before, take off the flesh, take off the old self, remove it, throw it away, cast it away, and put on Christ, put on Christ. And and so, there's these two different sides of the Gnostics, and... Gnosticism is really hard to pin down to what it is, but as I said, first core precept of the Gnostic way of thinking is that there's no truth to be found in this world. Secondly, as I said, knowledge is to be found within. It is not found from scripture, it is not found from that which can be known to everybody, but rather it is private, esoteric, secret knowledge 
from personal divine experiences. And thirdly, you re- because you have rejected what is out of yourself, outward, what is around you, because you've rejected the physical reality, you now need to reject the physical creator of that rea- reality. And so Gnostics viewed Yahweh as a demon, whereas they viewed Christ as a savior. Yahweh made the earth, therefore he was evil and wicked. He was at the very least a fool. Christ brought spiritual salvation, and therefore Christ is to be exalted. This, in fact, came out of the idea that Christ couldn't have been fully human. John actually responds to this idea in his book of First John, right at the beginning, in which he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we, which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are re- writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Therefore we know that the New Testament authors do not hold this view. And the idea that Christ wasn't fully human is actually part of a separate heresy known as Docetism. Now, Docetic thought was brought into Gnosticism, as Gnosticism was just a more complete system, which uh, took from pagan ideologies, Greek philosophy... Greco-Roman philosophy and melded it together with these uh, religious systems of Judaism, Christianity, and all other sorts. So we get we get we, we get these three foundations. The creation is evil. It's corrupt to the point that there's no truth to be found in it. Now, for a biblical Christian perspective, I would say that Yes, the world is fallen, it's corrupt. However, there is much truth to be ascertained from it. As I said um, in quotation from Psalm 19, David recognizes the splendor of creation, that it points to God. And so we must recognize fundamentally what is creation and what is its purpose. And its purpose is to ultimately glorify and honor God. Now, to back up what I'm saying, I'm going to have to turn to the Nag Hammadi Library which was written in the 2nd century AD. These are Gnostic texts that were found in 1945. They are the best description we have of the Gnostic religion. Prior to that, we had only Christian perspectives from that of theologians such as Tertullian and Irenaeus. So, in the Gospel of Thomas, which is one of these Gnostic texts, the earliest one that we that has been found, we see that he writes, these are the secret sayings which the living Jesus spoke and which Didymos, Judas Thomas, wrote down. So they're already starting with, these are the secret sayings. And each one is separate, and so it's not contextually built, as are the biblical texts. And so we find, verse 1, And he said, whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. And so salvation is already from ignorance, not from sin. That's the difference fundamentally between Gnosticism and Christianity, is that 
Christianity says we need salvation from sin and death, that we are wicked people and that God wants to be reconciled with us and we need to be reconciled for he is a just God. And yet the gospel of Thomas points this out very clearly. The Gnostic religion, the Gnostic belief system teaches that it's salvation from ignorance and so therefore, as it's about your knowledge and what you have ascertained, what you have understood, and your private interpretations, you don't need to be evangelistic. There's no reason to spread these ideologies. It's just your arrogance. And so therefore, the Gnostics actually looked down upon everyone else, and it was about their knowledge, what they had ascertained, of course, what they had understood of this knowledge that they had found within themselves, and that's what they wrote down into these scriptures that they wrote. And I'm, I'm going to read it through a couple more from the uh, Gospel of Thomas, and then we're going to move to the Apocryphon of John, which is the other really, really important one to read. If you're interested in looking at this, go to gnosis.org, which is run by Stephen Holler, the guy I quoted before. He's a modern Gnostic bishop, runs a denomination known as Gnostica Ecclesia. So verse 22 of the Gospel of Judas tells us very clearly, Jesus saw infants being suckled. He said to his disciples, These infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, Shall we then as children enter the kingdom? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and female one and the same, so that the male not be male, and not, nor the female female, and when you fashion eyes in the place of an eye, and a hand in the place of a hand, and a foot in the place of a foot, and a likeness in the place of a likeness, then you will enter the kingdom. Notice that the male may no longer be male, nor the female female. They were the first egalitarians, the first so-called Christian feminists. In fact, Tertullian even resp responds to this. That's uh, the early church theologian, Tertullian. And he wrote, how wanton they are, for they are bold enough to teach, to dispute, to enact exorcisms, to undertake cures. It may even be to baptize. He wrote that in his book entitled Prescription Against Heresies, if you want to check that out. Now, this was a problem. This was a problem. And we see this time and time again, popping up, popping up. That these ideas are constantly a threat and that's what we're seeing right now in the 21st century that they have popped up again you know we're making it so that the male is no longer male nor the female female the authority has been usurped I brought this up in my podcast on George Floyd and the riots that in fact the government has usurped the authority of the pastor the people have usurped the authority of the government everybody has usurped the authority of God women have usurped the authority of the men and this is one of the key goals of Gnosticism, is to usurp this authority. In fact, that's why they call Yahweh a demon. They undermine him because they worship themselves. They believe that they are the true spiritual beings. They are to be ultimately glorified. And to point out even further how they were the first Christian feminists, if you can call them that, I'm going to go to the Apocryphon of John now and show you who they believe the true, good, divine being is. 
Now, this is in the section entitled, A Crisis That Became the World. It happened that the realm, wisdom, of conceptual thought began to think for herself. That is, Sophia, the goddess. She used, to, she used the thinking and the foreknowledge of the invisible spirit. She intended to reveal an image from herself, to do so without the consent of the spirit, who did not approve. Without the thoughtful assistance of her masculine counterpart, who did not approve. Without the invisible spirit's consent, without the knowledge of her partner, she brought it into being. Because she had unconquerable power, her thought was not unproductive. Something imperfect came out of her, different in appearance from her. Because she had created it without her masculine counterpart, she gave rise to a misshapen being unlike herself. Sophia saw what her desire produced. It changed into the form of a dragon with a lion's head and eyes flashing lightning bolts. She cast him far from her, outside of the realm of the immortal beings, so that they could not see him. She had created him in ignorance. Now, who is the, this him? Well, in here he's entitled by three names. And let me move forward in the book towards the section entitled The Fashioning of the World. He is ignorant in darkness. When the light mingled into the darkness, the darkness shone. When darkness mixed with the light, the light diminished. No longer light nor darkness, but dim. This dim ruler has three names. Yaldaboeth is the first. Saklas is the second. Samael is the third. He is blasphemous, he is blasphemous through his thoughtlessness. He said, I am God, and there is no God but me. Since he didn't know where his own power originated. And so the claim is that God, that is Yahweh, actually commits the sin that we have all committed, which is to deny him. To deny our originator, to deny the giver of all gifts, whether physical or spiritual. And they claim that that's what he's done, that he is the, that he is the sinner. And therefore it is his fault that the world has fallen and not ours. Therefore you don't need redemption from sins, but rather redemption from the ignorance that he has caused. Yahweh is the problem, not us. And so therefore, Gnosticism flips the gospel. Gnosticism has no understanding of the gospel. It has no understanding of God either, obviously. And so it is neither a God nor a gospel that can save. And yet we see it popping up now all over the modern church. We see with the social justice movement, we see that the Southern Baptist Convention has signed on to saying that Social justice, intersectionality, critical race theory are analytical biblical tools. Yet, this is what pastors such as Vodibachum have defined as ethnic Gnosticism. And that means that these people have taken with themselves apparent, private, secret knowledge. They say, because of your skin color, you don't know what discrimination feels like. You don't know what racism feels like. You've never experienced it. And they make that assumption and that judgment on the basis of skin color. It's a private knowledge for a certain group, just as the Gnostics had. And yet now we see churches signing on. And these are Baptist churches. This is not the Charismatics. This is not the Catholics. This is the Baptists. And so, for those listening, I think it's we need to really take into consideration... Where has the church gone? Where is the church going? And how do we as a church need to respond? 
And how do we need to heal from this? Obviously, as I said, the woman pastor issue, that although that is secondary, I do think it is vital to an important understanding of sanctification, to a proper understanding of the how the church is to be run. And obviously, it's fundamental to the very core being of Gnosticism. And so we'll move forward in that, and we're going to now get into Charles Finney. Now, Charles Finney lived in the 19th century, so there's quite a gap here, and I'll fill that real quick. But Gnosticism went on for a few centuries. It lasted till the 5th century before it kind of fizzled out to an extent. However, there have been constant pop-ups throughout history, and that's why there's still the Gnostic Church nowadays, including a rather large sect in the Middle East known as Mandaism. So, Gnosticism never died, however, the ideas and tenets of it are being popularized once again, and that is the point of this. Now, how is this playing out for us in the 21st century? How have we gone Gnostic again? You may think, well, we don't view God as evil. We don't view the creation as a place in which there is no truth to be found. Rather, we worship the creation, right? In the sense that we, in the sense that we are following this whole climate change thing and the whole Mother Nature, Mother Earth, where we're following that, we're going down that route. And so, therefore, why would you say that we're going Gnostic again? Well, first and foremost, we can see in the area of divine revelation. First and foremost, of course. You know, this secret knowledge, private knowledge, that's what paganism is. We're seeing the revival of paganism, um, witchcraft, Wiccanism. I'll get to this in a bit. This was all done through the work of Carl Jung, and now Jordan Peterson is following in his footsteps. But the fact is, we need to go to the 19th century to understand where, how the church got dumbed down in its theology. You know, we, we had this whole ref- reformed way. If we had the Great Awakening, people like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, all the way leading up to Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. And yet the church looks nothing like that anymore. So we must ask what happened. And that is, of course, the Second Great Awakening. And amongst the Second Great Awakening, we have the tallest figure standing out, and that is Charles Finney. Now, Charles Finney, for those of you who don't know, he was one of the biggest influences on Billy Graham. He was a revivalist preacher in the 19th century. He was a Pelagian, believed that man initiated salvation and ended salvation. Um, Justification and sanctification are man's work, whereas glorification is the work of God, where we are brought up to God. That is the only aspect of salvation that is God's. And so, Finney was a heretic. Finney was rejected as a heretic. In fact, even B.B. Warfield himself, the Calvinist preacher, said, you could remove God from Finney's theology, and it wouldn't change. Now, Finney was a full-on legalist, and I don't know how he became so popular, considering the fact that not only did he hold to Pelagianism, you know, you have to initiate salvation, and you have to, it is on you as a human being to walk through the process of salvation. He also held to sinless perfection, which was the which is the idea that you need to be sin-free. You need to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, in the sense that you need to be perfect, perfect, 
unmarked by this world to the fullest extent. Otherwise, you're not saved. And I'm not strawmanning him here. I'll read from a section of his uh, so-called systematic theology written in 1878. A spirit of self-justification is another evidence of respect to God's authority. He could not but obey him in all things. If, therefore, it be found that a professor of penitence does not manifest the spirit of universal obedience, if in some things he is manifestly self-indulgent, it may be known that he is altogether yet in sin, and that he is still in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This, this is just nonsensical. Reading this insanity coming from a so-called pastor and theologian, and yet he just goes on. But, but for sinners to be forensically pronounced just is impossible and absurd. As we shall see, there are many conditions while there is but one ground of justification for sinners. As has already been said, there can be no justification in a legal or forensic sense, but upon the ground of a universal, perfect, and uninterrupted obedience to the law. This is, of course, denied by those who hold that, ju that gospel justification, or the justification of penitent sinners, is of the nature of forensic or judicial justification. They hold to the legal maxim that whatever a man does by another, he does by himself. And therefore, the law regards Christ's obedience as ours, on the ground that he obeyed for us. The doctrine of Im imputed righteousness, or that um, Christ's obedience to the law was accounted as our obedience, is founded on a most false and nonsensical assumption. After all, Christ's righteousness could do no more than justify himself. It can never be imputed to us. It was naturally impossible. Then, for him to be obey on... on in our behalf. This representing of the atonement as the ground of the sinner's justification has been a sad occasion of stumbling to many. And so he doesn't even believe that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Finney fundamentally denied the gospel, and yet he was a massive impact on Billy Graham and on modern evangelicalism. And I worry about this because Finney didn't know what the gospel was. And this is why Finney had to go to extreme methods to even bring people in. And it made him famous because he said that God works through excitement. And that excitement was the basis upon which we need to do our evangelism. And he did this through multiple means. He would use emotional tactics to get his congregation to weep and to faint, which we see quite often now in the charismatic movement and the uh, New Apostolic. New Apostolic Reformation, the Word of Faith movement, and it's just all over the church. He started what was known as the anxious bench. He would open the front pews while he was preaching in case um, someone felt as though they needed to come to the front in order to turn themselves over to Christ. This was the earliest version of the altar call. And so therefore, I, I think modern Christianity is based more on the legacy of Charles Finney rather than scripture, which is disturbing. Frankly, it's disturbing and it's wrong and it is unbiblical, unfounded, and unauthoritative. And this is why we have stuff like the sinner's prayer now, this idea that you can get saved by praying a certain prayer to Christ. Where is that in scripture? Where is that in scripture? Please, please answer me on that. 
we just have we have so much of this tradition that we have built up and it's not biblical it's purely tradition and the way we go about it is so it's so full of ourselves and it's so lacking in Christ now I think it's important to note that Finney was a post-millennial in his eschatology which means that he believed the world was going to get better he believed that by the end of the world by the second coming of Christ almost the entire world would be saved and so that led him to this excitement thing you know we, we need to, we need to get as many saved as possible so that Christ comes back soon and he, he himself said that excitement cannot last long it need, it needs it needs to uh it, it it's done in short bursts otherwise it'll break down our theology it'll break down the church in the sense that it won't be structured biblically and in that sense he was bang on he was correct He's very correct about that. And it's showing now. It's really showing. And that's why we see people like Stephen Furtick and Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn. Guys who are just... I can't even begin to describe it. You know, Todd White is probably the most influenced by him. This idea of sinless perfection and the altar calls and all of that. And yet he says that the go- the cross is not the um, the revealing of our sin, but rather of our value. I think that's a fundamental fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, and it's not even the gospel itself. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian when he began preaching. Yet he later said that he hadn't read the Westminster Confession of Faith or hadn't understood it anyways, and rejected that. And so that was a false gospel. Now, I'm not a Presbyterian. I don't hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The closest thing for me would be the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. However, that it's got a bang-on definition of the gospel. Just because I disagree with my Presbyterian brothers and sisters on baptism does not mean I would say they believe in a false gospel. And so, therefore, because I side with them, because I side with my Baptist brethren, I have to oppose Charles Finney. And I have to oppose the legacy that he has left. And as we see, he has gone back to the emotionalism of the Gnostics. That our primary basis for theology, for salvation, for evangelism is an experience. It is personal intimacy with God, but not in the way that God meant for it. It is us coming to God. It's foundationally in us, not in him. And so therefore, it's not a gospel that can save. And it's not a God that can save. Because God is not sovereign in Finney's theology. Rather, God is waiting for us. God cannot turn our hearts in this situation. And therefore, he's waiting. He's waiting up in heaven. We need to initiate our salvation and we need to become sinfully Empty. Empty as can be. We need to be perfect. And if it's on the basis of us and what we do, and if it's an expected perfection in this world, there is no salvation. And there is no understanding of the gospel. Because the only human being who could ever live a perfect life was Christ. Because he was the God-man, 
He was fully God and fully man. And so therefore, this lack of respect for the distinction between Christ and us, this entire idealization of man that results in a worship of the creation over the creator who is holy forever and ever. Amen. Again, Romans 1, 25. It's so foundational. So foundational. This was the original sin that Eve looked towards herself. That Adam looked towards himself. They didn't look towards God. And so what we see, and I'm sorry, I'm getting a little passionate here. (laughs) Charles Finney was a full-on heretic, and he has affected the modern church in so many ways that it makes me mad. It makes me sad as well. It frustrates me that, that people would listen to this guy and what he said. He is popularized by Billy Graham, by YWAM, by all these people and organizations, some of whom I even have, who I hold in high respect. And yet, I cannot and I will not support Finney or his theology ever. And so I I think it's vital to understand what he did. He did set a precedent, a precedent for holding emotions in a higher view than scripture. That we would go experientially based in terms of authority rather than scripturally based. And that has damaged the church. That has hurt the church as it's gone forward. And that is what we're seeing right now. We are seeing a church that lacks scripture. It lacks the sufficiency of scripture. People like John MacArthur and Phil Johnson, James White, Paul Washer have been warning about this for years. The fundamental doctrine of the Reformation was sola scriptura. And if we do not have that, we have nothing. And that is what's being shown now. We, we have seen Francis Chan go to the wayside. First, linking arms with the NAR and the Word of Faith movement, people such as Todd White and Benny Hinn. And now he's accepted the Roman Catholic movement. He's, he considers them brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not to say that there aren't those who are in the uh, Word of Faith or Catholic systems right now who aren't saved. I I believe that there are some who are saved in there, but that is in spite of the systems, not because of them. It's because of God's grace through, through those systems that he has been kind to them and he has applied his grace to them. And so it breaks my heart that we, that we would actually support this in the modern church. You know, we, we see this wave of apostasy coming through because nobody has foundation. Nobody has a authoritative foundation. And we need to be looking to Christ first and foremost, always. And so, yeah, that's Finney. Finney was, you know, he, he got a lot right. And I'm not going to go against that. He said that the Presbyterians and Baptists preached another gospel. I agree with him. They did preach another gospel. And that's because they actually preached the gospel. And, you know, some may say I'm being too harsh on Finney. However, we are warned in Galatians chapter 1 by Paul that whoever preaches another gospel is accursed. And so not only is Finney accursed, but those who he has influenced in massive ways are also accursed due to that. And those who are saved who he has influenced are under error. They are under massive error. 
and they'll be held accountable for that. And that's why it breaks my heart, and that's why I think this needs to be addressed. And so we, we see in the early church that they had Gnosticism, but they had a deep theology, and they knew how to deal with this. People like Irenaeus and Tertullian, they responded. Books such as Against the Heresies dealt with this in a way that the church could move forward and move past it. However, we now live in a postmodern age where the foundation for all argumentation is experience and feelings and emotions. Where is your personal divine revelation? That is what that, that is our current system. That's that's not the church's system. That's the culture's system. That is that is the belief system that is held and it binds together the culture. And it's beginning to get its claws into the church. And it's sinking further and further and further. And it disgusts me, if I, to be quite frank with you. So, yeah, no, I don't have any patience for the doctrines and the theology of Charles Finney. I really wish that that man had preached true theology, that he had preached the true gospel. But the more and more I read of his, I've read through his memoirs and through his systematic theology, and I... I have no respect for anything that he wrote other than the little bit that was correct, which is not much. And at the same time, I have to recognize that Charles Finney was a man made in the image of God, just as you or I. And so although I hate with a passion his wicked doctrine, I recognize that my theology would be far worse than his, but by the sovereign grace of God. And that I myself would be far worse than him, but by the sovereign grace of God. And so it's not on the basis of me or him, but rather on the basis of God and his grace applied in the life of the believer. And I also recognize that Finney was a pastor. And James warns people against teaching. Not many of you should become teachers, my dear brothers. That's James chapter 3, verse 1. And why? Because we will be held to a higher responsibility. We will be judged more harshly, more strictly. And so my heart breaks, not just for the pastors that he has influenced, but for Finney himself and how he's going to respond to God in this, how he did respond to God. And we, we need to be really thoughtful to these things. We need to be really thoughtful because they're going to impact us and they're going to influence us. And there has been massive, massive impacts made. And so now I want to get into the third part of this discussion, and that is the works of Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson. Now, Carl Jung was a student of Sigmund Freud, the psychologist. However, Jung was not secular as Freud was. Jung rather went down a pagan route. His father was a pastor, and he started to have visions when he was young, and it helped him to realize, well, what my father believes, I don't believe, because my father is going based off of a book that is scripture, whereas I am going based off of my experiences. But I'm my religious belief system is real because I'm personally experiencing it rather than my father who's basing it his off of words on a page. Now, one thing that's important to note about the life of Carl Jung is that he was seeing demons from a very young age. He had multi-personality disorder, and the second person was his spirit guide, who he ended up naming Philemon, an old man with horns. And he wrote down these interactions that he had in a book entitled The Red Book. 
and it's it's a very demonic book, but it's the basis upon which all of his psychology overflows. The Red Book was not released until after he, di- he died because he knew that it would discredit him as a psychologist. Now, many of you may not he- have heard of Jung. However, you've probably heard of a lot of the things that he has influenced. For instance, he created the Myers-Briggs personality test and he popularized the hero's journey story format. The hero story hero's journey story format was what was used in Star Wars. It's used by Pixar. It's used all over Hollywood. And so even if you don't know it by name, you've experienced it. The Myers-Briggs test has been become very common, very mainstream, uh, really used in the 16personalities.com test. And so, yeah. But Carl Jung also popularized the words extrovert, ambivert, introvert and archetype and it was this this word of archetype this this was the structures that he he created out of that that there was different archetypes different characters different beings and that was how he classified the world and yet we see that young is now pushed by the gnostics for instance as i quoted from at the beginning of the podcast in describing gnosticism stefan holder was commentating on a text by Carl Jung himself entitled The Seven Sermons of the Dead. Now, one of the things that we notice really commonly in this entire new version of Christianity, which is itself not Christian, is the redefining of terms. That they don't use words in the same way we do. And so there's one word, It's it comes from the Koine Greek, it's entitled pleroma. And I'm going to go through here what how... Jung uses it. Now, I mentioned last week in my presuppositional apologetics episode that Hindus in their texts, entitled the Vedas, they've redefined terms themselves. And so we went through that last week with the terms immanence and transcendence. And now with Pleroma, which is used in the Gnostic texts, and I'll get to what Jung says on it in a minute, and how it actually parallels Hinduism and this idea that God is identical to reality. However, at the same time, we cannot understand God, and there's no way to understand or ascertain truth from God fully. And that's what makes Gnosticism so fascinating, is that nobody can do it except the Gnostics themselves, and that's only on the basis of who they are. And so there's a certain level of pride in it. And so this Greek word pleroma is found 17, 17 times in the New Testament, referring to the totality or fullness of the Godhead that dwells in Christ himself. Whereas in Gnosticism, it's talking about the spiritual universe as the location of God and the totality of the divine powers and emanations. And so, like I mentioned earlier, Yahweh is created. There's multiple gods. There's multiple levels of gods. And so they're polytheistic. Whereas we as Christians are monotheistic, which means they believe in multiple gods and we believe in one. We believe in one God, three persons. And I, I like to get to an episode on the Trinity at some point. But the fact of the matter is, they believe in a polytheistic system, which in and of itself contradicts Christianity. Like, they, as I mentioned earlier, in their own texts, they say that it was ignorant of God, of Yahweh, to say that I am God and there is none like me. So, how does a scholar like Jung 
come into this, someone who has been so influential on our modern civilization. And, you know, just to give you an even further sense of how Jung has influenced us, his own student, Joseph Campbell, wrote a book entitled The Man of a Thousand Faces. Now, this was about the hero's journey, as I mentioned before. Jung popularized that. However, Campbell was the spiritual advisor to George Lucas on Star Wars. And Lucas himself has an interview with Bill Moyers, you can look that up yourselves, discussing this, discussing the spirituality of Star Wars. That he was trying to push paganism, that this idea of no religion is correct, but rather they are all correct. And of course, if all religions are correct, then many can't be correct. And it's a a self-defeating statement, because if Christianity is correct, then all others are wrong automatically. So... I think, I think that just goes to show how deeply this has embedded itself into the modern culture. However, my point today is with the church. I think the church really needs to be reformed in these areas, and we need to look back to Christ and look back to the gospel as a solution. And so with Young, he says in the first sermon of the Seven Sermons of the Dead, I'm not going to go too far into this, I'm going to quote a little bit, but He says, the nothing or fullness is called by us the pleroma. In it, thinking and being cease, because the eternal is without qualities. In it, there is no one. For if anyone were, he then would be differentiated from the pleroma and would possess qualities which would distinguish him from the pleroma. In the pleroma, there is nothing and everything. It is not profitable to think about the pleroma, for to do that would mean one's dissolution. And he goes on a bit further and he says, I say these things to you in order to free you from the illusion that it is possible to think about the Pleroma. When you speak of the divisions of the Pleroma, we are speaking from the position of our own divisions. We speak about our own differentiated state. But while we do this, we have in reality said nothing about the Pleroma. However, it is necessary for us to talk about our own differentiation. For this enables us to discriminate sufficiently. Our essence is differentiation. For this reason, we must distinguish individual qualities. Now, what is Jung saying there? That's a lot. He's really good at language, and he's really good at masking what he's saying. However, Jung is getting to this point. There's a spiritual, there is a spiritual location, and as where all spiritual beings are located, and it is nothing and everything at the same time. We cannot know anything about it. And why does he say that? Because he's a Gnostic. And so Gnostics believe that the spiritual and physical are completely disconnected. They're completely disconnected. And so therefore, we cannot know anything about it. Yet we must think about ourselves in light of it. We must differentiate ourselves in light of it. But we have said nothing at all about it itself. And so therefore, it's a self-contradicting message. It self-contradicts. And it, it fails to stand up. It's it's an Eastern style of thought being approached um, with an approach to Christianity, and it fails because Eastern, Eastern thought fails. It's always self-defeating in those religious systems. And that's what Gnosticism is. is it's an Eastern version of Christianity, and it, it cannot stand up to the true biblical gospel. Now, what makes Jung's teaching so fascinating is his belief on the shadow This was part of his psychology as well as part of his occultic beliefs, and that is man's propensity towards evil. 
that we have the ability to carry out carry out just as much evil as any racist out there, any Nazi out there. That no one is greater than another, that anyone has the same propensity for evil, and it is very, very deep. And so, to an extent, Carl Jung recognized the nature of man. And so does Jordan Peterson now in the 21st century. But they don't have a solution. Their, their solution is to look towards the self, to look towards ourselves, and look to the divine spark. That is one of the teachings of Gnosticism. That is why there are people who are saved from ignorance. And so it's the recognition and the knowledge of this Pleroma, this spiritual realm and these spiritual beings and the spiritual aspect that we have within ourselves and a pursuit of that knowledge that enlightens us and it saves us. And that is what salvation is in this modern Gnostic sense rather than the Christian one. And so what we see is we see these melding together of the Phineism and Jungian thought in modern Christianity. And let me get let me get into that. And how has that really affected us in our theology? And so this is seen through people in the modern church such as T. D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Oprah Winfrey, Rob Bell, and Richard Rohr. Now Richard Rohr is where we're gonna start here. He has defined Christianity as what he knows as the pantheistic religion. And what what is pantheism? Well, pantheism is Hinduism, it is Gnosticism as I just defined by Jung, and that is that God is all. And that all is God. And when you make God all, when you make God the universe, when God is in everything and God is everything, God is ultimately nothing. And so therefore it's the self contradiction. It's what the Hindu commits, it's what the um Jungian commits, it's what the Gnostic commits. This idea that God is everything. He is everything. And therefore, there is nothing that is not up outside of him. And it's a, it's a lack of acknowledgement of who God is. As I mentioned in Romans chapter 1, there is a distinction between creation and creator. And they destroy this, this distinction in order that they may worship themselves. They may worship the creation over the creator who is holy forever and ever. Amen. And... Rohr is a Franciscan friar. He's a Roman Catholic. He has influenced all the aforementioned people, Rob Bell, Stephen Furtick, um, Oprah Winfrey, all of them. And Rohr is behind a lot of this movement. In fact, I heard Stephen Furtick quote him once in saying that Rohr says that faith is patience with mystery. What does that mean? It means patience with that which we cannot know, the Pleroma, that which is outside of us, the spiritual realm that we must ascend to through knowledge. And so fra- this Franciscan friar himself, Richard Rohr, is popularizing Gnostic thought. And Stephen Furtick is going one further. He's speaking to this millennial generation and raising up a generation of false converts And so I need to reject people on the basis of this because this is a very, very Gnostic way of thinking. It's something that the early church condemned and something that we need to condemn. And in this postmodern culture where there is no objective truth and in this pagan culture where it's let everyone have their own God but don't tell anyone that their, that their God is wrong and that yours is the only true one. 
it's a lot harder to defend against this. But we need to. We need to look at this biblically and wisely. And God does say, I am God and there is no other. There is none like me. And we see time and time again in the scriptures, when someone wants to become like God, he denies them. That's what happened with Lucifer. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. That's what happens every time we sin. We're saying that we are God. We're taking his gifts and forsaking him and not acknowledging him. And so elevating ourselves in this, we are saying, when we say God is all, when God is the universe, God is principle, God is being, when we're talking about the Pleroma, this concept, in the way that the Gnostic thinks about it, we are bringing God down to our level and ascending ourselves to his. And that's not okay. That is not an okay thing at all. And as I mentioned, with Charles Finney, how does Charles Finney get into this? Well, first of all, he broke down theology. He brought it to a level where it was no longer important. Excitement was the basis for all of this. And so now we have excitement, but it's not excitement over true biblical Christianity. It's excitement over Gnosticism, over these things of personal divine revelations from above. It's excitement for things that we get to pursue ourselves and we get to forsake God in that we pursue the gifts, but not the giver. And that is really foundational to heresy. I find it's really vitally important because what happened in the 19th century was that what is known as hyper-Calvinism was on the rise. Now, hyper-Calvinism is itself heretical. It says that because God is sovereign in salvation, because he makes his election, his decree, his choice in salvation, when he chooses his people, it is no longer important to evangelize or to pray because it's already preset. However, at the same time, we want to recognize God wants to use us as his vessels, as his people. We are to preach the gospel universally to everyone, and God will use us to certain people as he pleases. And so hyper-Calvinism was on the rise, and it was, it was this laziness in Christian culture that gave rise to people like Charles Finney, who came through, who saw this and went, Calvinism is wicked, because he had this strawman view of Calvinism, and he went forth with this false sense of revivalism, which was foundationally in ourselves rather than in Christ. And that propelled us forward to this point where we're now linking arms with the culture. As I mentioned in my episode on George Floyd and the riots, I've seen many Christians linking arms with Black Lives Matter, with secular organizations. I've seen many Christians linking arms with Abby Johnson, the unplanned move- movie, with National Right to Life, which have no foundation in Christ. No foundation. And so therefore, I find this really important. We need to pursue theology. We need to pursue the things of God. Because that is the only foundation upon which to objectively stand. Any other framework upon which we look at the world is going to fail. We are warned against building our foundation on sand. God is the only rock. And I find this really important to get across. If you want more information on this, by the way, please reach out to me. I'm totally willing to... Uh, have a conversation on this. I've been studying this for months. My quarantine has been filled with this. And so I love to have conversations on this. Could you please share this episode? I find it, I find it to be a really important episode, one that I've been really passionate about. Could you please um, like and review this on iTunes? If you want to contact me, my email is thereformedrants at gmail.com. 
I have a Facebook account entitled The Reformed Rants. It's a page. And I have a, an Instagram account entitled The Reformed Rants. I'm really enjoying this, guys. I'm finding... Um, found some technical difficulties in uploading. It was Tuesday. And so please do bear with me as I get this podcast off the ground and going that I that I do well. And, and please pray for me that I would stay humble in this, that I would not go based off of my own, own knowledge, but rather that I would look to Christ in this. That Christ would be my foundation in all of this. I would I would not become prideful, but rather that he would humble me through this. I uh, I, I love feedback. I love criticism. And I, I love encouragement. Anything you guys got to give. I, I really appreciated it. I really appreciate it. So yeah, yeah, that's what I have to say on this. If you have any thoughts, please do reach out. Have a good one. <laughs>